It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Mitch Michaels in the Santa Monica Studios hosting this show as always, ready to bring you another episode of exclusive, exciting tennis content with the players and analysts you know and love. First up, I'm joined by TC Broadcaster, fresh from the booth this week, right to the podcast microphone. It's Ari Wolf. Ari's calling all the outstanding action around the globe this week on the TC Airwaves. He's got a lot to say about the year that was. Second time on the show the last six months that saw Carlos Alcaraz and Novak Djokovic play some exceptional matches. We gear up for the ATP Finals, Yannick Sinner lurking. And how about Hubie Hercaj winning the Shanghai Masters? We break down that win for him over Rublev. Quinwin Zhang, Jessica Pagula, Leila Fernandez on the women's side. Ari Wolf shares his thoughts on Coco Goff's rise, her major championship, what the women's game is going to look like at the finals in Cancun and beyond. A lot of great tennis talk with broadcaster Ari Wolf. And then it's my privilege to be joined by Dana Matthewson, 15-year veteran of professional wheelchair tennis. Last year at the Wimbledon Championship, she won the doubles title, becoming the first American in the history of the sport to do so. Dana's a very inspiring person, a pioneer in a lot of ways. It was also a very fun and lively chat. She's incredibly positive, explains how she came to term with the hand she was dealt, how she would not let that situation affect her life. She lives each life with passion every day. We talk about that iconic run at Wimbledon, how she was engaged the day before she got engaged. And then she goes up and wins the doubles title at Wimbledon. What it was like throwing out the first pitch at her hometown San Diego Padres game. And how she hopes to inspire people around the world and change the stigma about disabilities in this country. Dana Matthewson was a great guest. It was an honor to talk to her. It's Ari Wolf up first, followed by Dana Matthewson on Tennis Channel Inside In. And it starts right now. All right, we're now joining us on Tennis Channel Inside In, back again, second time on the show, so officially in that reoccurring guest status. It's a play-by-play veteran. You've heard him calling tennis, football, a lot of other sports. TC's own Ari Wolf. Ari, thanks for coming back to the show. Great to be with you, Mitch. I survived the last time, and I'm hoping to survive this time. Yeah, some good feedback on the last episode, which, hey, we like all feedback, but good is a little special, too. And I was looking back at the notes of last time. It was, like, late April, we were looking ahead into the French Open season and just starting off there, how things changed and how things also stayed the same. But we had the Alcaraz breakthrough against Djokovic, but it didn't happen in RG. It happened at Wimbledon. Djokovic wins wins the French, Alcaraz wins Wimbledon, and then Djokovic wins the U.S. Open. So we saw Djokovic still on top. We saw the Alcaraz breakthrough though at Wimbledon, not RG. It's funny how we can kind of predict a lot, but even with tennis throwing curveballs, you don't know exactly what's going to happen. We get curveballs yeah. all the time. I think that's the beauty of tennis is expect the unexpected. And I actually thought once Alcaraz won Wimbledon, I thought there was going to be a domino effect. When he met Djokovic in Cincinnati, I thought, well, he now has the edge on him. It was an epic encounter. One of the best three-set matches I've ever seen. Djokovic wins that match. We didn't get to see the rematch at the U.S. Open, but another year we're almost getting to the end, and it's Novak Djokovic, who's clearly still the number one player in the world. 
Yeah, it's, I mean, full marks to Alcaraz breaking through. It's also so hard to not just get to the top, but be the dominant force there. Djokovic is just such a chameleon, I put it at. Like, he keeps adjusting. These are almost the closest thing to prize fights. I know it didn't happen at the U.S. Open, but you see adjustments every time. You had a sense. Alcaraz adjusts to getting his body in shape, getting to the point where he's not going to have the nerves and the cramping issue, and outplay Djokovic in the fifth set of a Wimbledon final. But she had a sense, even at 36, right? And it's crazy that I keep having to bring up his age. But there's not much slippage with Djokovic. And any, you know, I was talking to our friend Jeff Chisver about this. Any slippage that he has, he's able to conceal and just transform his game, play a different way, come to the net, serve a little better. That's the most remarkable thing to me about all that Djokovic has accomplished. He's constantly finding ways and finding the motivation to find tool his game. And he's found ways to find motivation in creating new rivalries, right? It mm-hmm. seems whoever is the guy he's toe-to-toe with, whether it's been Nadal, whether it's been Federer, and now with Alcaraz, he sees that challenge and embraces it and tries yeah. to take his game to another level. His mental toughness to me is what separates him because his game has it all. I don't think there's a signature weapon in his game that stands out from the rest because he's so solid at everything, but it's mentally. Yeah. His belief that he's going to find a way to win even in the toughest circumstances, I think that's one area we're going to have to see Alcarez evolve right. because we have seen some frustration here late in the season. We've seen him lose a tough first set and kind of crumble in a second set, something we never see from yeah. Djokovic. So I think there's still a lot for Alcarez to learn, but Djokovic, I think it's all clear now. I don't think there's any debate about whether or not he's the GOAT. What I'm most amazed by is he's still so motivated. He yeah. still wants to be great, even though all of his peers are basically come and gone. That he still wants yeah. to be that guy. That guy, uh, he's, <laughs> he's unbelievable. That quote uh, that Goran, even even Isvich recently said, where it's like, it is hard to motivate him because he's won everything. But part of it that I loved was, he's like, you have to argue with him. You have to give back and forth. He doesn't want all yes men in his corner. He doesn't want to think I'm the best and I can do this. And I did kind of think there's there's the mental toughness. There's also, and I use it lightly, there's the mental tactics that he uses. Like when he talked about Alcaraz at the end of Wimbledon saying he's a combination of the big three, I think he was planting the seed like, okay, this is a new challenge. Let's, let's attack this one. You're 100% right about the frustration. And that will come over time with Alcaraz dealing with it. That Medvedev semifinal, Medvedev played the lights out in the first set. Alcaraz still could have won it. But there was that moment, that natural letdown, we saw Djokovic have this early in his career, so I'm not doubting that he'll he'll come and, and overtake that problem, but when you're dealing with the best of all time still at the top, you know, there's a lot of expectations on Alcaraz. He's handled it well, beautifully, but he's going to be looked at as you should win this tournament every one he's in, and that's, that's a tough thing to handle for anybody at any age. Well, it takes a little bit of the fun yeah. out of it, right? Yeah. When the expectations <laughs> are that you're supposed to win. Yeah. But we've seen now a few times with Alcaraz, we talked about it on my first visit with you here, about his joy for the game, mm-hmm. the smiles. Mm-hmm. Well, we've, He's gotten away from that a little bit. Yeah. I think for himself, his expectations are higher. And so he doesn't just seem to want to win. He wants to win and make highlight after highlight. I mean, he loves to make the perfect shot, the exciting shot. He likes to play to the fans. Yeah. So I think that's all good. But when you find a sticking point in a match and you're struggling a little bit, I think then you have to dial it back a little bit and just kind of stay in the match early in a second set when you've lost a tough first set. And I think he's let some some sets get away from it. There's a lot to be learned there. Uh, But he's got no better role model to look up to to handle it than Djokovic. Yeah, and, you know, looking at that Medvedev match again, the semifinal, we've seen Djokovic lose sets to players playing lights out, be off. His thing is, I'm going to go to plan B, I'm going to go to plan C, I'm going to find a way to change it. We saw it when he came back from two down. He was still the betting favorite in that match, two sets down. 
He's like, let's take it one game at a time, get the break here, go, you know, conserving energy. And, and I agree with you too. The other, you know, all-time greats in Federer and Nadal and even some historical greats might have had more flash to their game, more signature shots. Djokovic is just technically all around the best. Like, there's no weakness. Everything he does is how it's taught, basically. And he is mentally tougher than anyone that's ever played the sport. And I would put him in an all-time short list, probably one hand of mental toughness, at least in my life. We can go back further to the all-time 20th century athletes, but he's got to be mentioned in that conversation. Well, I thought one of the really interesting things, and it was a really poignant moment for me because I have a deep love for basketball, a deep love for Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant was sort of the master of the mental toughness. I mean, his physical gifts were obvious to anyone who watched him play. But right. what separated Kobe was his mental toughness, his his will to win. And the fact that Novak connected with Kobe and they had the tight relationship and he leaned on Kobe mm -hmm. to learn some of these things, yeah. I think that, that speaks... To Novak realizing that greatness can come in different sports yeah. and that he could yeah. learn from some of the greats. So I thought when he, you know, had the 24 and he recognized Kobe, you know, I know Djokovic wants to be loved more than he is. But mm -hmm. when he shows that part of himself, right. I think that that's an opportunity for people to love him a little bit more. So I thought, you know, that was a moment I thought there was a little bit of risk in it to see how it would be. You know, how it would be taken, how it would be perceived, connecting himself in that moment to Kobe. But I loved it. I thought mm -hmm. it was a special moment. And I think it, it tells you a lot about Novak seeking out guys mm -hmm. that had incredible mental toughness. So those are the guys he looks to to learn to how yeah. to be a better competitor. And Kobe connected with him. He said he was a Djokovic guy, yeah. you know, which was, which was cool to see. Yeah, I, I, I think he's entered this stage, too, where he's going to be more beloved. Again, it goes without saying, it was, it's so tough to follow the greatest act in the history of tennis following Federer and Nadal, you're not going to be the favorite when you follow those guys or the fans, and I think he's going to get more love and praise as he goes forward. Uh, we have a lot to talk about in the tennis world. We're into October, and you know some people might say the season's too long. I'm going to say I just love watching tennis, so anytime we get a chance. We had a Masters event in Shanghai for the men on the ATP. Hubie Hercox wins his second major in Shanghai, beats Rublev in an epic final, goes through the distance. It was a match to break down, but... For Hubie and, and Ari, I bring this up not to take anything away from Hubie and what you know his ceiling might be and where he is in the pecking order, but when there's an opportunity, I, I feel like when there's you know maybe players that dip earlier, there's you know we're, we're looking at a tournament trying to figure out who the contenders are, and maybe we're not sure. He seems like he walks through the door. He did this in Miami and Shanghai. We were waiting to see who was going to step up at a land of opportunity, and the guy for the big guy from Poland who everybody seems to love wins his second Masters. He's very likable, and his athleticism is sneaky, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, he is a great athlete. He's hit some of the best tweeners I've ever seen. In yeah. fact, during the shutdown during COVID, they had like an exhibition in South Florida. He was running backwards and managed to do a tweener against yeah. Mackie McDonald that just literally blew my mind. I feel like it was the, the play of the day on every network. He's a guy who I think is often underestimated because – he seems just kind of cool and comfortable out there, mm -hmm. right? Like, there's not, like, a real intensity to him mm -hmm. when he's on court. Uh, he seems to love to compete. He doesn't shrink from the big moments. And when you've got a serve like he does, yeah. he's got a chance against anybody on any surface. And I think that, you know, he's a guy in his generation where we may be surprised at the end of his career. Who knows? Maybe he has more than a handful of Masters mm -hmm. 1,000 titles. 
Maybe he'll get to a final of a slam. I don't see him currently winning a slam, but, you know, we've seen him in a semi, you know, so he's a guy that I think is in that next group of great players in this particular generation. I mean, to beat Rublev, who's, you know, been a perennial top 10, top eight guy, and to do it the way he did, to play all these tie breaks, I think he's over 50 now, like 54 on the year. So he's comfortable there. The movement, you're you're 100% spot on there. Uh, You'll hear his peers say for a guy of his size and maybe lanky stature, we have, you know, some premonitions about how these guys don't move. He actually moves very well, and he plays the big points well. So I think he is in that next tier where it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, a slam would, but like quarterfinal, even semifinal, has an opportunity, plays some big matches, and he's beating big players to do it. That's a tough loss, though, for Rublev, like a very tough loss because everybody talks about, and, and justifiably so, Ari, how positive, he, or how positive he can be out there, how funny and relatable, how he's got this fun game. He is an emotional guy, and when you blow a, a Masters championship at 5-2, and I say blow lightly, but when you have that chance, you're two points away and you miss some makeable points, it's tough to recover and get over these losses when you wear your emotions on your sleeve like that. Listen, he you're, he's an emotional guy out there. I mean, he's willing to do things to his rackets to harm his physical self <laughs> yeah. in a way that scares yeah. me when he does it, whether it's punching the strings, knocking the racket on his body. You know, he was criticized by Stefano Tsitsipas that he, you know, doesn't have a lot of dimension to his game. I think Rublev has answered that. I think Rublev's mm-hmm. results speak for themselves. Yeah. He's never going to have the variety in his game that maybe some people want. Yeah. But what he does, he does really well. And he loves to compete and he plays a lot, right? Yeah. I mean, you give yourself an opportunity yeah. if you play in every Masters 1000. Mm-hmm. You know, he had some injuries early in his career, but he stayed pretty healthy for the most part the past few seasons. So I think Rublev's, like you said, he's an easy guy to root for. But I think that, you know, he's sort of right there where Hubie is. I don't know if he wins a slam. He seems to get stuck in the quarterfinals of Grand Slams. But, you know, with the right draw, I definitely think he could get to the final of a slam. I'm not convinced he can win a slam, Mm -hmm. but uh, Rublev's putting together a Hall of Fame career. I think that his, you know, I would say for the slam question, four is high. He's as consistent as it gets. He does have some weaknesses that I think at the top, and we saw that was this with players like David Ferrer and Thomas Burdick, where when they get to that final boss level, it's tough. The second serve isn't as great. Players like Djokovic feast on it, Alcaraz too. It's also really tough to lose a match like that and have to sit there for the trophy presentation. Like, that's, that's the other side of it. He doesn't get to go right to the locker room. He has to be out there. But I think his game and his personality is great for the sport. I just think in these matches, when you get so close... And you have the style and personality and demeanor that a lot of us have where you're so emotional, it can be tough. But he's still, and we'll get to this at the end, he's still in a comfortable position to get to the ATP finals again. And, you know, who knows there what can happen. These, And this is a bigger picture this time of year. It's about building confidence and setting the table for next year. So you can say these matches don't matter, don't mean much. But if you could score a title, a big win over a player maybe you haven't had success in the past, that's what the time of October and November tennis is for me. Well, I think... Every match counts, right? We talk about it all the time at Tennis Channel. Yeah. Every week can change the trajectory of your career. Right. And if you look at a guy like Rublev, if he's going into his offseason, how can he get a little bit better? I think if he could find a little bit more variety, a yeah. tiny bit more feel. You know, when he comes forward, it's usually an easy volley because he only finally comes in when he's clearly yeah. established dominance in the point. I think if he could learn to volley a little bit better, just yeah. you know, if he's a six in volleying, become a seven. You know, I think that there'll be opportunities there, but I think the reason a Masters 1000 loss hurts so much for him is you got to be realistic. 
you know, if he wins this slam, it's probably going to be one. So he's really going to be measured by how he does at the Masters yeah. 1000. So when you see that opportunity there, and you're so close to mm-hmm. getting the title and you don't do it, but one thing about him, he's still in the prime yeah. of his career. He's got time on his side. Yeah. And like I said, when he stays healthy, he's a contender every week. Hubie beat him in the Miami one that he won too in, on the road as well. So it's, you know, props to Hubie Hercos. The other guy that did well in that uh, tournament that I just want to mention is Sebastian Corda. We hadn't mentioned his name recently as much. Had the great run in Australia, had wrist injuries, was, was kind of stumbling out a little bit during the spring and summer. But he makes a run, beats Ben Shelton, who we'll get to also in a second. And Corda, kind of like a friendly reminder, like, hey, don't forget about me. As as far as Americans go, he is one of the premier to watch. And I would argue that along with Shelton, that's the ceiling debate of these guys actually have more levels to get to and I think could ultimately be the, be the Americans that pace this generation. Well, it's interesting. I think people who focus on American men's tennis and you look – at the group that's near the top of American men's tennis, it's a nice variety pack. There's all kinds of different styles and different games in there. So who do you think has the most potential? I'm with you. I, I think Shelton, to me, has the highest potential. I'd put Corda on that level. I, yeah. I think Corda has a chance, and that's going to be so fun and fascinating to watch. Obviously, with Shelton, you can see it. He got to another quarterfinal uh, this week. It's the first two of his, of his non-counting majors tour career, back-to-back. And he's only getting better and better. It's like the AI that's just getting programmed to do better each week. It's a little scary. It is a little scary in this day and age. But Corda, I do think I would put on that par. Like, I would say Shelton would be the betting favorite to use betting terms. But Corda has elements of his game where I think he could be at that level. And there's a steadiness to Corda in his on-court demeanor. Shelton rides Mm -hmm. a little bit more of a roller coaster emotionally. Corda is just locked in and solid. And Corda, remember, isn't even the best athlete in his family. It's not even close. (laughs) It's not even close. (laughs) So I just think that Corda comes at it from a unique... You know, mindset uh-huh. and think about also, but Shelton has that in common. His dad was a pro tennis yeah, player. So when you of, yeah. yeah, when you wow. grow up yeah. around it, you're not wowed by these moments because you grew up around it, right? You went to go see your dad's matches. You've been in the atmosphere, and I think you know I'm going to use a different sport. People look at Patrick Mahomes and they're like, he always looks like he's good with it. Well, his dad was a pro baseball player. He's been in that atmosphere, mm-hmm. been around the pro game, and I think that helps a lot. Just the comfort level when the lights yeah. come on that you're not overwhelmed by. It. Quarter or Shelton, I think they're almost a deadlock for me if we're taking futures. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is interesting. I think that there's a lot of diversity in opinion on who the best American is. Uh, I think coming out of last year, I thought Tiafo this was his year. And I think that it's a bummer for him coming back to expectations. Yeah. Making the quarterfinals at the U.S. Open, you should feel great about. But I feel like he got to the quarterfinals and frankly, didn't play his best tennis. He did not meet the moment. And now all of a sudden, I think he feels like it was a disappointing year, despite Mm -hmm. the fact that he won two more titles. He doubled his career titles this year. Yeah, Tiafo's tough because, you know, in in current form, if you take out the Labor Cup, he's lost his last five matches. So he's on on a downturn as well, just trying to... You know, and people will say the season, like we were saying, is too long. Tiafo probably, and I would guess, wants to play as much as possible, get confidence, get match wins under his belt. But... Yeah, he had two major results, Dimitrov at Wimbledon and then the U.S. Open against Shelton, where he left the court furious with himself more than anything. So, yeah, it's, and he's and that's the thing. He's a big match guy, so he will appreciate the titles, but he, he views like a lot of us do as fans. Like, how do I do in the slams? That's my year. So that's where he has the sour taste in his mouth. The, the last thing I want to say in the Americans, Ari, it is going to be very, very tough to make that Olympic team roster. It is. I don't know if you it's saw a great that race, to have. but it's good. Yeah, yeah. really tough. Yeah. Well, the one last thing I'll say on Tiafo, and I hope that this is taken the right way. 
I don't see the joy anymore. He doesn't yeah. look like he's having a good time. He used to be the guy who was like the original Alcaraz, who was smiling, engaging with the fans. Yeah. When you watch that quarterfinal match against Shelton, he looked like he was the veteran who was dealing with the weight of expectations. Tough, there yeah. was no joy in his game. Yeah. And I don't know how you get that back. I think it's possible. But I hope he remembers what made him so successful mm -hmm. was playing loose mm -hmm. and having fun out there. When he took out Nadal, remember how he played the crowd? I mean, yeah. that crowd was yeah. in love with him. And I thought a year later, all of a sudden, there had been this transformation of expectation. And I just hope that he gets his love back because, you know, if he's the breakthrough American star, I think it does wonders yeah. for tennis because his story mm -hmm. is arguably the best story of his generation. It is pretty crazy to think that these guys that have been the most accomplished in Tiafo and Fritz, the majors for Tiafo this year and for Fritz, you know, the last couple of years didn't have the breakthrough that a guy like Shelton and maybe even Corda when he went down to Australia, you know, earlier as well. So American tennis, a lot to like. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. More with Ari Wolf here on Tennis Channel Inside In. Want to get to some stuff on the women's side. We had three champions last week in some smaller events. Shout out to Jesse Pagula. You know, she goes to Korea where she has some lineage and her family wins that tournament. It was a special time for her to kind of connect with part of her culture. But also, you know, we forget too, we take for granted, just getting into the winner's circle, even when it's a small tournament, she's got the finals coming up. It's good to see her ho hoist some hardware and, you know, build up some confidence heading into the finals. I agree with you. You know, she's been so close. You know, I, I think there is going to be a breakthrough. I think she is going to win a slam. Mm -hmm. You know, her ball striking is great. I feel like... She's good at managing her emotions. She doesn't ride a roller coaster. When you watch her matches, you'll see a little bit of frustration, but she manages it really nicely. Yeah. And I just love her ball striking. She's gotten better throughout her career. And I think playing a lot of doubles has helped her singles. Yeah. I think the future is very bright for her. But again, you know, expectations for her, the only next thing for her to do is to win a slam. Mm -hmm. And now that Coco got her first slam, it kind of yep. changes the look of American women's tennis. Yeah. And I'd be curious how Jesse feels about the state of her game as we start to look forward to next year. I'm really pumped for these finals in Cancun, and it's kind of a crazy stat. I feel like the field is as good as it's been in recent years, and Pagula is the only one that didn't make a slam final this year. So every other woman either won one or was in a final. Jesse could very well win this. She's done well. You know, she won the tournament in Mexico a few years ago. There's a lot to like about her game, but I agree. Like, she's getting pushed by Americans, and also, you know, she's one of the elder statesmen now in this yep. group there, so... I think there's a lot of variety at the top of the women's game. I talked about this last week with Pam Shriver, but it's like, you know, it's like going to a grocery store. You can pick out whatever you like. You have different styles of play, different personalities. Rabakina was on a podcast this week talking about how she knows she throws people off with her quiet demeanor. I think it's great to just not have one way 
to play and one way to, you know, act out there. Well, I think we saw that kind of contrast in its best form in the U.S. Open final. Seeing Arena Sabalenka and Coco Goff, their games are very different. Mm -hmm. Sabalenka is just grip it and rip it, right? <laughs> yeah. And you know exactly how she feels at all times. And I, mm -hmm. I think she's, I, I'm a fan of hers. I love that she's yeah. very self-deprecating. I yeah. think she's charming. And then you saw Coco, I mean, managing that match. Yeah. With Sabalenka playing as well as she was playing, for Coco to handle that with the whole country behind her. Yeah. You know, you got former presidents coming to see you play. Yeah. You know you're a big deal. And so what I would credit Coco, she's a great player. She's an incredible athlete. Right. She's got it all. But it's how she handles everything. The the total package, which includes the off-court stuff, mm -hmm. in a time where with social media and a lot of the negative energy that's out there, she has a level of maturity that's just, just off the charts. And yeah. I give her parents a ton of credit. She's such a wonderful ambassador for the sport. Mm -hmm. And I just think Coco kind of encapsulates all the things that are good about American tennis. And I think she's going to feel the weight of expectations moving forward. Because once you've won a slam, as Tracy Ellison tells <laughs> me, you've either won a slam or you haven't won a slam. So she's now in the I've yeah. won a slam group. And I'm curious to see how Coco manages all of it because it's a lot. People are going to be looking to her to be the next Serena Williams. Yeah. Look, she just won her first Grand Slam title. Yeah. It's just hard. You know, American culture, right. you always want to compare to the greatest of all time. Uh, but I think Coco is a wonderful person, and I don't think she's come anywhere close to fulfilling her potential as a player. Absolutely. Weight of expectations is, is something serious when you followed American legends like Coco has. I think the only issue she's going to have is that player from Poland because that, that's going to be the player is Iga and her, and I know that you know she finally did beat her this year. But that eight to one head to head, and then Iga, like we all expected, is going to recalibrate, is going to reset, not number one anymore. That's the matchup where if Coco figures that out, if she can at least make it level, like kind of how Djokovic flipped it on Nadal, then sky's the limit. She's going to start collecting slams. But I mean, beating Iga, we know, is going to be tough. And now that Iga knows, okay, I have a threat out here, I think she's going to turn her game up. And that's why I'm just so excited for what these next few years unfold. Well, we've got, I think, great depth at the very top of the yeah. sport, right? We've got that top 10, I think, is mm -hmm. really good. Any one of them could win a slam. You know, when you look at the variety of the different styles of play, I also yeah. think that's very attractive to fans. We've got some huge hitters. We've also got players who have great finesse, like an Ange DeBoer. So there's, there's yeah. a lot of great players there near the top. But I think... You know, if you're an American sports fan, Coco has the crossover appeal. Yeah. You know, she's on a first-name basis. She's got the New Balance sneaker deal. She's, she's, got, on she's got it all yeah. going right now, and I just hope that she continue to have fun with it because social media and outside voices, as soon as she fails in the next, whenever she loses right. in a slam next, it's going to be, I mean, you yeah. underachieved. And I'm glad she got one for her sake. Like, look at a guy like Sitsipas, right? He's been so close. Now he's 25 didn't get one, and now he's hearing noise that you know for sure, even louder in this country, obviously, Coco would have heard if she didn't get one, you know, not this year, maybe next, and then all of a sudden, it's like you've been around for six years, where's the title? It's a, it's a cruel business out there, but is, is there anybody else on the women's side before we move along that you think outside that top 10, maybe a little down, you're, you're buying stock in? We don't have to say slam winner, but top 10, top 5 potential? Well, there is so much depth, and I'm trying to think about some players that I see that I feel like have a lot of potential, but most of them have actually already had yeah. Grand Slam wins. I'm trying to think who has the rest of the field. Well, I would, I would say, think. like, if you go the next tier down, she won last week, but Quinn Winsang, I thought, has top she, 10 and top, can be top 5 10 for sure. written all over. She doesn't play in that traditional, I would say, Chinese style of the players that have made it. People have seen Li Nan, the way she plays. Quinn Winsang is powerful. She can move, and... 
you know, I think I think WTA finals is all but a certainty, if not next year, then very soon, because she is, you know, a very talented player and apparently a good karaoke singer, too, as we saw. <laughs> well, yeah. I think Carolina Muhova is probably the player I think has a chance to win mm-hmm. all four slams, right? Her mm-hmm. game translates to any surface. So I think, well, she's probably already included in that mm-hmm. top group, but yeah. considering she hasn't won a slam... Yeah. I love her game. I love her demeanor. Yeah. I like the way she carries herself. And again, another underrated athlete. It's it's not so much explosive. She just seems to, to have her body in the right position. It's right. very controlled right. athleticism. And I think that she handles big moments. She doesn't shy away from them. So I think if I had to choose maybe out of a handful of people who's the next slam winner or hasn't yeah. won one, I think Mohova is near the top of my list. I would say just as a flyer, not not going to say slam winner, but getting steam. I just love watching Peyton Stearns play, yeah, young American, and I think she's got some toughness to her, right? Toughness and athletic, I little think that could be like something the there. good kind of attitude out there. Like she's yeah. a fighter. Like she doesn't care who is across the yeah. net. She's going to bring it. Yeah, head down, ready to roll. Um, yeah, and it's just crazy how fast this can change, right? It wasn't so long ago, and we hope they get back there. But we were thinking Osaka and Drescu when Ash Barty was playing. Muguruza, who might not be coming back to tennis. These were the top players, and now, look, we have a new class. It's been like two, three years, and it's almost seven out. That's, you know, the train keeps rolling, as I say. It keeps happening. You look at, like, Sophia Kennett, right? She wins a slam. She's like a forgotten Grand Slam champion at this point because she hasn't backed it up with results, has had some injuries to deal with. But, you know, when you watch her play, she strikes the ball beautifully. I wouldn't count her out at all. She's still so young. So I think that she's a name that we have to keep in mind as we start to look towards next season. It's a fun time for sure. Uh, And I also want to shout out the other championship winner last week, Layla Fernandez, who made a U.S. Open final. Same thing, right? The dips, maybe some injury issues. You lose your ranking points. You have to build all the way back up. For her to get back to the winner's circle, there's still a lot to like with her game, and she does have youth on her side. She does. She's still a very young player. Look, and staying healthy is key, right? When you look at, you know, who she competed against in that U.S. Open final, unfortunately, Emma Raducanu has dealt with one injury after another. And I think it's one thing that is an unfortunate part of tennis is can you stay healthy? Can you take the grind? And Layla is healthy at this point. I think that there's still room for her game to improve. I think she can become a better volleyer. I mm-hmm. think she can add a little juice to the serve. Uh, but she's got great competitiveness to her. Yeah. She's a good athlete. And she knows what it's like to play in a Grand Slam final. So I, I hope we hear. I, I think she can do some good things moving forward. That run to the final was crazy. The players she beat, you know, going through who she did to get there. It was like Sabalenka, Kerber. I wanted Osaka as well. I mean. She's a big match player, and we love to see it. One of the best post-match speeches we saw, too. Well, it's going to be interesting though, having some some new moms come back to the tour. Yeah. It's not just Osaka. I'm curious to see Angie Kerber. When when Angie retired and announced that she was, well, she may not have formally retired, but she now she was going to start a family. I thought, she's already won three slams. This is it. Three, she's done. Yeah. It was a great time. Angie, awesome career. Seeing the Hall of Fame in Newport. Mm-hmm. But she's coming back, so I'm very curious to see because what Caroline Wozniacki showed us all is that you know, if you actually have kids by a certain age, you've still got a lot of years left in your career. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think we could see Wozniacki playing for another five or six years if she wants yeah. to play. Yeah. So I think we're seeing more and more examples. I think it's great because I think in other generations, I think some women thought, well, if I want to have a family, then my career is over. Mm-hmm. And now we've seen lots of shining examples that yeah. you can be a mom, you can fulfill your dreams of having a family and still be a world-class tennis player. 
Yeah, Kim Kleister's effect, I'll call it that. Yeah, Starting I like there, that. Went in a slam. But yeah, it's true. And they, they come back with sharper focus, Fidelina as well. And, the and I think like factor. a renewed love of the game because I think they want their offspring to realize how much they love it. Now, you <laughs> yeah. see, it's not just them when yeah. they're babies. I think someone want to play long enough so their kids are old enough to see them actually play and yeah. at the peak of their game so that their kids can have an understanding yeah. of what their mom is doing in their oh, yeah. chosen profession. We're going to have a few kids that end up playing for oh, sure. We're I calling mean, it yeah. now. <laughs> the genetic yeah. effect I mean, is real. Uh, DNA is a real thing. <laughs> so <laughs> the real. Gene pool is a real deal. Uh, wrapping up here with Ari Wolf on Tennis Channel Inside and the ATP Finals race is kind of where I want to get this because there's still a lot to decide. W one player that's not going to be there, but I just want to mention fellow Canadian, the Layla of Felix Ojeali's team. He's finally won back-to-back -back matches, first time since March. So another reason why you play late into the season. He made the finals last year, was a match away from making you know the elimination semifinal round. Hadn't happened well for him. We've seen kind of some tense moments. Labor Cup comes to mind. But Felix is somebody that the game's always been there, still super young. He just needs to find confidence. I know it's simple to say, but hopefully this is the start of him turning the corner. Well, let's put a couple things in perspective here, Mitch. Remember when we all thought he couldn't win a final, right? Didn't he lose his first eight or nine yeah, finals? Yeah. So then he overcomes that. He wins some titles. And then he's clearly run into a stumbling block where he's lost confidence. Because when you watch him play, it doesn't look the same. He doesn't mm -hmm. have that same belief on court. But the talent is there. He's got youth on his side. I think they're, I don't know when the light switch is going to go back on, but I love the fact, like you said, that he's playing at this time of year. I think he needs to get matches. And I expect to see him near the top of the sport next season. Yeah, I mean, there's too much not, there's too much in his favor. And there's just, uh, we, uh, we've seen players have dips. I mean, you can't compare to the all-time greats. It's just not sustainable. Nadal in the top 10 for however many years. Historically, even, you've had players dip out and they just recalibrate. Whether it's a coaching change, whether it's an approach change, I'm confident he'll be back. It's just going to take time to rebuild up. Another guy like that to me is like Matteo Berrettini, right? Yeah. Like, we all thought, I mean, he was right there. He just made the, the finals of Wimbledon. Injury luck, like yeah, just terrible brutal. injury luck. He's been super close. You know, you start to look at the age and you start to look at how good the players are that are younger than he is. So is Berrettini a guy on anyone's short list to win a slam? I'm not so sure. A couple of years ago, we thought yeah. it might happen. I'm just wondering if maybe his, his moment may be gone. So I'm looking at the list now. We have four official guys in Djokovic, Alcaraz, Medvedev, Center. I just want to also point out before I keep going, Djokovic is, I think, nine years older than the next closest. So that's where we are with Novak, just lapping the field. Uh, those four in, Ari, then Rublev, we'd say comfortably in. It would take a lot for him to get, you know, not clinching. Sitsipas, Verev right now, Holger, Fritz right on the cusp, and then it dips off with Rude, who lost today to Marcos Garon, Hubie, Paul, and Diemenauer. But anything stand out about that list and, and the pecking order as of right now going into the Paris Masters? Well, we'll say that the Casper Rude season was mm -hmm. a stunner to me. You know, he was coming off just an incredible year, making multiple slam finals. You know, a lot of people have pointed to, you know, the postseason run with Rafael Nadal mm -hmm. that he didn't take time off, didn't work on his body. You know, I don't know enough. To, I mean, to he make... said that. that. Like, he said he would not do it again. Yeah. Well, so <laughs> yeah. he's a player who I think you know, we're going to see a renaissance from him coming up shortly. But the guy that I, I think is most interesting that's already in is Yannick Sinner because he's now shown in a best of three sets he can beat anybody, right? Yes. Anybody. But can he win seven best of five matches? That is the one thing that he hasn't shown us yet. I think, though, if you can win an ATP Finals and, let's say, get wins over Alcaraz and Djokovic, well, then maybe you head into the next year with the level of confidence yeah. you haven't had. I think Darren Cahill's the perfect coach. I think they mesh beautifully. But to me, out of all the slam winners, the guy who's next in line is Yannick Sinner. I agree with that. I know there's no replicating a major. This is 
I think the next biggest test, all these players here, round robin format, having the head to head edge over Alcrest too is kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, it's it's the physical question of five sets too. It's like he can go toe to toe with these guys, but he's lost. I mean, this Verev at the U.S. Open, he's lost those heavy matches. So how can he fix that? I I think Fritz is going to make it. Like the way Holger hasn't played with injuries, and now you, I would say he'd be the favorite to get into the tournament too which would be interesting to hear him say because when he had his dip in the season, I still think this was like always a goal. Like Taylor Fritz is always built towards For sure. the end of the year and has just got that competitive singular focus that isn't uncommon with the players that Paul Anacona's coached over True. the years. Yeah, I think Fritz, I'd love to see him get in there. You know, the one guy he hasn't been able to solve at all is Djokovic, so I think any more opportunities he can play <laughs> yeah. against him. Look, yeah. he, I don't care how many you've lost in a row, you can't beat him unless you play him again. Yeah. Uh, the Holgeruna dip, though, this season caught me by surprise because I thought he had a level of toughness to him now that I question because there have been times where I feel like he hasn't competed at his best, and that's not something you normally say about a great player is they didn't compete hard. Yeah. I don't know. Sometimes some something doesn't wonder, seem right about him. Because you, I was, like, we would have put him right on Sinner's level. Right, like he's in that cut, maybe even higher with the potential that he had. I don't know if it's managing his body, if it's injury luck, if it's just yeah dips and focus. I, you know, I have. It's fair to say even before even when this run, there were times when that Monte Carlo final against Rublev where he just taps out for like fifteen minutes. He does. Tiafo had that a little, and he's kind of tuned it out a little yeah. bit better. But yeah, there's there's something there with with that that is the most surprising. I'd say on the good side, seeing Zverev back in the mix here, which is kind of insane to believe that you know over a year and a half now from one of the worst injuries we've seen on a tennis yeah. court, and he's looking like he's going to be back in the ATP Finals. And he is also a guy that I think wants everybody to remember. I'm still here, like yeah. I'm still Sasha Zverev. You know, at his best, he's won the ATP Finals. He's a guy that's got a ton of game. No one can really overpower him because of his length and his ability to cover the court. You know, he gets that second serve where he has full confidence in it. Because yeah. a lot of times it's just a second first serve with Zverev. Yeah. You got to include him in the mix, right? Yeah. He's got a chance, particularly, I think, at Roland Garros. If he's going to win a slam, I think that might okay. be the spot for him. Yeah, he had an epic win over Tiafo there this year. And, and look, and, and I'm not saying he's going to do well at this tournament. There's no means to that. But if you're looking at the field and saying, which would this win do the most wonders for? It's got to be Sitsipas because he needs just something to build off of. I mean, he's at that point where I just... I you like to see progress. He's clearly got some confidence issues as well. The game's there. It's hard to believe he made the final earlier this year, but Sitsipas is still trying to find his game and you know his mental clarity right now. All right, I, I'm going to just put this. I'm really happy for him because in his personal life, he seems happier than yeah, he's ever yeah, been. For sure. So that's yeah, great. Yeah. But I think a lot of people want to be like, well, that's taking away from his tennis. I'm not going to make that, that right. connection. I just know that his tennis is currently suffering. He doesn't look like he has the belief out there. He's not. You know, he's the guy who forgets the score because he's so dialed in, right? Like he doesn't realize the yeah, game's yeah, over because yeah. he's playing every point yeah. just for that point. That seems to be gone for the moment. He can definitely find it again. But right now, I think that his attention is not just tennis. He's got mm -hmm. other things going on in his life. And I always try to remind players that I've been friends with is there's more to you than being an athlete. So I'm trying to balance this here. Mm -hmm. it, to me, it's not just about the tennis. Yeah. If Pass is genuinely happier in his life now, and that has some cost to his tennis, I think he should be good with that. Yeah. I do think in a perfect world, he can have the best of both worlds yeah. and that he could be a future slam winner and be happily in love at the same yeah. time. We've seen it with the big three, big four. So uh, hopefully, hopefully he gets stability on the tennis front the coaching front as well, and he finds his game there. But this should be a great field. 
Alcaraz, Djokovic, maybe. I mean, we'll see. Maybe an indoor, another round. Would that be round four now? Round four, and look, the, you know, with the exception of Roland Garros, where we kind of got cheated out of a full match Still there. great two sets, but... Yeah. Awesome two yeah. sets. Obviously, Wimbledon speaks for itself. Cincinnati, again, I, I mentioned already, I think it's the mm. best three-set match yeah. I've ever seen start to finish. Like, that's now the rivalry that everybody seems to want. There are all these other great players, but if you took a poll and they said, who could be in the final of the ATP finals? Who do we want to see? It's Djokovic and Alcaraz. They seem to bring out great tennis in one another. The contrast in styles is great. You've got the GOAT taking on the guy who I think Alcaraz thinks he could go down as the greatest of all time. He does not lack confidence, that young man. So I think that's what everybody wants to see, whether that plays itself out. There'll be eight great players there, but selfishly, I definitely want it to be Alcaraz and Djokovic. An indoor hardcourt, too, is another wrinkle we haven't seen. We'll see how that goes as well. Djokovic's record there speaks for himself. I mean, he's built for it. So I can't wait to hopefully see that. Ari Wolf. This has been a blast. I did have one other thing, too, and it's a little crossover. We've seen it in the NFL world with that Monday night game. I feel like there's a lot of tennis fans, like that crazy Charger fan that was just going nuts on the internet. <laughs> right. Her. That's like that's not too uncommon in tennis. You go to some of these tournaments, you're going to see crazy, passionate fans for their guy or girl. Well, I think the, the level of fandom in tennis is completely off the charts. I mean, one of my close friends literally doesn't sleep right because you're following tennis <laughs> yeah. around the clock. I'm happy to use my DVR and watch it during normal waking hours, I but I have uh, friends who feel like I've got to watch the tennis as it happens. I think it's a great time for both the men's yeah. and women's games. I think there's lots of intriguing storylines. I think people were worried in women's tennis. What are we going to do after Serena? We're, yeah. uh, what are we going to do on the men's side after yeah. Roger? Well, I think the game is the game. It's about the tennis. They'll be the next star on the women's yeah. side. We now have Coco Goff right now. Yeah. To me, she is the brightest star in women's tennis on the men's side. Djokovic mm-hmm. is still king, and then you've got Alcaraz mm-hmm. right there. So it's a great time to be in tennis. That's good. We'll have to get that on a T-shirt. The game is the game. We get you some royalties out of it. We'll <laughs> I like see. it. I like it. Ari Wolf, pleasure as always. Thanks for coming on Tennis Channel Inside In. Can't wait to do it again. Appreciate you, Mitch. Thanks to Ari Wolf, a pros pro broadcaster, very generous with his time and very, very knowledgeable about this sport of tennis. We could have gone all day. So in the interest of time, we'll, we'll save that for another week down the road. But thanks to Ari Wolf, catch him on the Tennis Channel airwaves all week. A pleasure to always chat with him. Next up, I'm joined by Dana Matthewson, one of the best wheelchair tennis players in the world. She was the first American to do quite a few things at that level, including winning a major title by securing the doubles crown last year at Wimbledon. We run through what that fortnight was like, her engagement the day before, everything that's happened in her life, how she has turned an extreme negative circumstance into a positive, and how she inspires people, and how she has a very balanced, very special, very passionate life that includes getting a doctorate degree and uh, having a lot of interest you might not know about her. It's a great chat with wheelchair tennis pro, one of the best in the world, Dana Matthewson. Here she is now on Tennis Channel Inside. All right, welcome everybody to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Mitch Michaels, as always, from the Santa Monica Studios into October. This 2023 season still continuing on. Special guest on this week's show, 15 years as a tennis player, uh, became the first American to do a lot of things in wheelchair tennis, including win a major, Wimbledon 2022, which we'll get into her career, her story, her very inspiring story, it's Dana Matthewson on Tennis Channel Inside and Dana. I was looking forward to this chat. Thanks so much for joining the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited too. 
Yeah, we have a lot to kind of get to with uh, your career, your journey. There's a lot to be said, the pioneer aspect of it, how successful you've made yourself. And I know a lot of this story goes back to your childhood, the journey, everything you've been through. Before everything went down, what would you describe your active life? I know it's San Diego. You were the typical kid. You played a lot of sports. Tennis wasn't even really on the radar. What was your right. life like as a kid in San Diego growing up in this active lifestyle? Oh, man. I mean, I think if you asked like seven or eight year old me, I would have been like, oh, it's boring, blah, blah, blah. But now when I look back, I'm like, yeah, I had a great childhood, like growing up in a place where you can be outside all the time because the weather is like perfect. Um, my brother and I were always playing out in the backyard and, you know, like we weren't really inside kids in terms of like wanting to hang out by, by the TV and kind of like lounge around. We we're always doing something. Um, my mom had us in a lot of extracurriculars. So even if it wasn't sports related, we were doing like piano lessons or like art class or stuff like that. So, um, yeah, we had, I had a great childhood. I think there's always something to do. So when you got to the point where it was, you know, picking sports, what was it about soccer that made you want to play that game? I don't know. Actually, no one's ever asked me that. That's a great question. Um, I think I very much gravitated towards the team aspect of it. I think when you're young, you kind of want to do whatever your friends are doing. And a lot of my best friends were playing soccer. And so it just kind of seemed like, where I wanted to be. And then it turned out to be a sport that I just really liked playing. Um, I was, I played defense and I think there was just something about like defending something, doing it with my friends. Like I just loved it. I loved soccer for that reason. I didn't really give a lot of other sports a chance if I'm honest, which I think is probably why I never really took to tennis is because I was like, I already have my sport. I don't care. Um, so maybe I would have liked other sports, but soccer was just kind of it. Yeah, it's an interesting thing, and I think it speaks to, you know, some of the people that are the best tennis players are the late bloomers. They don't specialize early. That's a whole other thing. I don't want to get into that right away. Oh, my because, gosh, yeah, we yeah. could talk about that for sure. And I know this is you know, the, there's the big moment in your life that kind of, you know, changed everything, and you were 10 years old when this happened, when you had the issue, problem with your legs, and then, uh, unfortunately, the, the hand you were dealt with what went on past that, but... What I've always admired about your story from afar is just how honest and upfront you are, how you embrace it, but also how you know your positivity shines through. You look at it in such a positive way that it could have been way worse. Like the first thing yeah. that, that struck me was that, you know, it could have been fatal. So you not only did not have that happen, but still handled it and still had the outcome that was much better than it could have been. How are you able at such a young age to have such positivity? I, I don't know. I think part of that is just maybe my genetic makeup and how I am. I think I've always been like a really stubborn kid, which a lot of times being told that you're stubborn is seen in a negative light. And I think a lot of times it's definitely not a great trait to have, but I think for athletes and for people that are going through um, times of adversity, being stubborn is one of the best things that you can be. Um, for me, as a 10 year old, I didn't fully understand that like, oh, all of a sudden I'm paralyzed and I'm not going to walk um, the way that I used to or walk at all. Like that was hard for me to understand. And then I think once I started to understand it, it was kind of like, well, no, I'm not going to accept that. And that was like my stubbornness kicking in. And I think that I was just so lucky to be surrounded by friends and family that 
didn't treat me any differently. So then I, I still felt like me, if that makes sense. Like, cause I, I think that can go really one of two ways after an injury happens, especially to a young person where they can immediately started to be treated with quote unquote kid gloves. And that immediately makes you feel like, oh my gosh, I am fragile. Oh my gosh, I can't do a lot of things. And then I think your personality kind of changes to fit that. And with my family, like the second that I got home, my mom told me to do chores. Like, like I was just seen as still Dana and I was still pushed to be athletic and still pushed to do everything that I was doing prior to my injury. I just wasn't using my legs. And I think that that forced me to see this as not so much a tragedy, but just as like an obstacle that I had to find a way to live with and accept. Being able to process it as a kid, that's a very underrated point. I don't think a lot of people quite understand. And your support system, it seems like it means everything. Your parents, how great that they've been to you, you know, the ability to get the best medical care on not only that time, but going forward. Yeah. Could you talk to me a little bit about that support system, not just your parents, but all the people that helped you get through this difficult process and pushed you to not just, you know, accept fate and be sad to keep going and live your best life? Yeah, I mean... It, the big part was my mom. Um, my dad was still kind of in the picture at that point, but my mom was really like the driving force behind um, everything, whether that be like being with me in the hospital. Again, I was only 10 years old. So my mom was staying overnight with me for the entirety of the month that I was living in the hospital. Um, and I had a brother that was at home and he was, you know, staying with my dad and my mom literally just like, stayed with me and was like my rock. And I knew that I could count on her for like, kind of like, you know, it's like you're hearing, you're hearing doctors talk and all this jargon that you don't understand. And my mom was like a translator to me almost. So it was like, I had her there as a mom, but also as my doctor. Um, And that was like a huge sense of comfort. My grandma was also there. My grandma's um, unfortunately no longer with us, but she was probably the biggest example of being positive in a storm. Like she had so many things happen to her in her lifetime, but literally always had a smile on her face, was always making it a priority to make other people happy. And I think my mom learned that from her. And then I learned that from my mom. Um, So those two women were huge. And then I've just been really lucky to have, you know, since then coaches that have always pushed me to be better um, friends that were always really supportive of me. And like I said before, just always treated me the same. I've never been made to feel less than by my community or my, my core group of people. And I think that's honestly been the biggest reason why I've set lofty goals for myself or like had the audacity maybe to dream as big as I feel like I have. Yeah. Um, as I, I really don't think I would have if I had gotten out of that hospital and everyone just treated me like I was a piece of glass and that I would have, you know, I'm not me anymore. It's interesting too. We try to, you know, I try to find research and, and dig up what I can. You were a little more. Yeah, you've secluded. already like said a lot of things. I'm like, wow, he knows his stuff. <laughs> no, we have to be a little professional, but no, you were a little tougher because I get it. And I'm the same way. You kind of, you know, keep some stuff to the vest, but I will say, you know, looking at some of the social media pages, you're just as active, having fun with friends, being out there. You wouldn't know from that anything was necessarily wrong. I think that speaks to positivity and still living your life and being fulfilled. And I'm wondering too, if it was an approach of taking it one day at a time, not trying to think of the big picture, but still enjoy every day, enjoy the time with your mom, your grandma and the friends that have lifted you up. For sure. I mean, I think that that's something that 
I think can apply to anybody going through any hard time, whether that be like losing a job, losing a loved one, um, someone going through an injury like me, all you can really do is take it one day at a time. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I remember that when I was in the hospital, my mom was like, you can be sad for 15 minutes a day. And then after that, you have to figure out like what you're going to be doing next. And like, I think that I'd be lying if I told you that I'm literally only sad for 15 minutes a day. Like that's kind of insane. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But when you're going through something like that, I think it's good to give yourself boundaries, but to also allow yourself to be upset. I think sometimes when bad things happen to people, it's so easy for them to be like, oh my gosh, woe is me. And then everything collapses or it can go completely the other way where people push everything away or Mm -hmm. stuff it down and they never process anything. And so I think for me, I was really lucky that I was taught or kind of like <laughs> enforced or told that it was like, yeah, process your stuff, yeah, but only allow it to be for a short amount of time and then figure out a way to move forward. And I think that's, that's been a great life lesson that I've applied yeah. since then. Well, it sounds like your mom should have gotten to coaching because there's a, there's a sports oh mentality. Oh my god, I would have hated that. No, <laughs> oh, maybe not you. I'm not, maybe not you, but just in general. Maybe life coaching in yeah. some ways, but definitely not tennis. Okay. Yeah. Well, I can see that. Um, so, <laughs> so I guess getting into the sports side, when did sports become not only a part of your life, but almost this like saving grace of an activity and a, a sense of fulfillment? Even even before you you could even get to this point of wheelchair tennis, Paralympic athlete, all this stuff. When did sports re-enter your life after the unfortunate circumstances? Um, I think that tennis and like sports in general started to enter my life again when I was around like 12 or 13. So my mom, when I was in the hospital, was talking to all sorts of recreational therapists and all these people that come in and speak to you when you're in a pediatric ward. I think they also do that for adults, but especially for kids, they have people that are designed to help you kind of like transition back into the everyday world outside of the hospital. And they were talking to my mom about different sports and different activities. And um, I'm sure you've seen in some of the other articles that I've done, I was like not into doing any sort of adaptive sports. And my mom was like, no, it's going to be good for you. You're going to do it. And um, kind of going on the theme of like, mom is always right. I, was forced literally (laughs) by her to go to um, wheelchair basketball, wheelchair rugby. Um, I went to a all sports camp where I got to try like archery. There was like jet skiing. There was all sorts of stuff. And um, tennis just happened to be one of those things that I did and ended up being the one that I happened to click with the most. But I think that after, how do I want to explain it? After something happens to you where your independence suddenly disappears, finding sports again, at least for me, gave me that back. Um, I think people don't really realize how designed the world is for an able-bodied individual. Everything is designed for people that walk around. So when you suddenly have a disability or are feeling like the world around you isn't designed for you, AKA there's stairs everywhere, or do you know what I mean? Things like that. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to feel like your independence is completely robbed from you. And that's what happens to me at a very young age. And that's not to say that like everything sucked all the time, but it's difficult. And I think playing sports again and seeing like, oh, wow, I can move super fast on a court. I can be really strong. I can be part of a team. I can be really good at something athletic um, was really eye opening for me. And that definitely changed my outlook on not just life, but like on what disability is. 
I think so many people, myself included, prior to my injury, think that if you have a disability, your quality of life is less than, that you can't be remotely athletic, Mm -hmm. that um, there's no way that if you're in athletics that you could be comparable to any able-bodied athlete that exists, right? And that's like a narrative in our country that I find really unfortunate and is part of the reason why I had the beliefs that I did about disability. Um, But once I found sports, like my ideas were radically changed. Mm And I think it's, it's been like a blessing and a gift that, that, that did happen to me, to be honest. And I, I noticed on your website lists, you know, all the accolades and everything you've done, but it also, <laughs> it also says change agent on there. So that kind of, you know, talking to you for this first, you know, 10, 15 minutes, I'm kind of understanding why that is. This is something that's very passionate to you to not just, you know, find fulfillment in sports, in sports with a disability, but also change the narrative and maybe get rid of the stigma of what's out there for non-able-bodied people versus, you know, the other side. That matters to me so much. Like I can't tell you how many times people will see me at a grocery store or just living my life like the same way that you would. And I get approached with comments like, where's your handler? Why are you doing this Mm -hmm. by yourself? How could you possibly, you know, be doing X, Y, Z? And I'm like, I'm literally driving a car the same as you do. I'm getting my groceries the same as you do. And I think it's unfortunate that in our country – There's not a lot of representation of people like myself in the mainstream media. Um, And I think, you know, you can't blame the average American for not understanding that people like me exist and that we don't all have mental disabilities and we don't all have, you know, things that really make us so, so, so different from the average person. And for even those that have mental disabilities or what have you, we're really not all that different. And I think that because of that lack of exposure or lack of ability, a lot of people are afraid. Like people are, are of course going to be worried or like trepidatious around things they don't know. Mm -hmm. And so I totally understand that seeing a younger girl in a wheelchair is like confusing. Mm -hmm. So people don't always know how to act around me. But I think that one of the things I'm so passionate about is just educating people that like, I am a person still, you can Mm -hmm. still talk to me. Like I'm a person, you don't have to treat me with kid gloves. You don't have to assume that I can't open a door on my own or that I could never, do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think that's such an important lesson for people to understand that people are people regardless of what they look like, regardless of how they move around. And people just need to like understand like the whole phrase of treat people, how you want to be treated. It's so simple, but a lot of people need to be reminded. Do you see this as a America specific problem? You mentioned that in this country a few yes. times, that phrase. So you think it's a little, people are more informed in other countries and more, more, I yes. don't want to say used to it, but just it's more normalized. Yes. I think that's perfectly said. It's more normalized. Um, I lived in the United Kingdom for three years. I was getting my master's over there in London. And one of the things that attracted me to going over there was how they treat um, disability, whether that be mental, physical, Um, anything. Um, It's very, very normalized in that country, whether it be seeing a person with a disability on a commercial, seeing a person on a TV show, um, having them be actual celebrities, having them with podcasts, things like that, where it's just like, it's normal. Um, Japan, they're very much the same way. One of the the top, he's now retired, but Shingo Kunieda, huge celebrity in Japan, massive. Um, whereas someone of that level in our country, no one would know who they are. And I think a lot of that is because our country, 
I always say that our country is the most progressive in terms of physical accessibility. Like we have ramps, we have elevators, we have a lot of things that other countries don't have. But in terms of like being progressive mentally, we are the most behind. And I think that's because our country is so obsessed with with these um, coming from nothing type of stories. So whether that be someone that immigrated here and then came from nothing and now they're like a self-made millionaire, people love that in America because that's like the American dream. And so many times when I do things like this or give other interviews, it's all about how something terrible happened to me and then now look what I'm doing. And I totally understand that. That's my story. It's, it's like a great way to tell who I am. But I think that a lot of times my story is purely just inspiration as opposed to like, no, I'm an athlete. Look at what I did. Right. And I think in other countries, they look at people's disabilities and it's just like a tiny little footnote. And it's more about what they're doing as an athlete. Um, a good example is I was watching Great British Bake Off. I don't know if you've seen that show. Must have missed that one. Oh my God. I love the British Bake Off show. I think people that listen to this will understand it's okay. great. Okay. But they had a girl on there that had um, missing fingers on her hand. And nothing was said about her having that. It was literally just meet her. This is what she's making today, blah, blah, blah. Whereas if that was in America, you know, they would have done like a 10 minute story on how she lost some of her fingers. It would have been like how amazing it is that she's now on the show. It's like a whole thing like that. And I Mm. think that that's where our country is different. Yeah, I I hear what you're saying. There's a lot of narrative pieces out there and it's not all it's not all bad. It's just that's just how it is. And we'll see. Correct. It's not all bad. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that it's bad Mm -hmm. to be an inspiration or anything Mm -hmm. on that front. But I would like it to not be the only thing that defines people like myself. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. More with Dana Matthewson here on Tennis Channel Insight. And I did want to get to your tennis career because from someone that didn't, sure. didn't like the game, admittedly, and then became one of the world's best players. I want to know if there was a moment where it all came together or a switch where not only are you into it, but you realized I'm pretty good at this. Like I'm competing with the world's best. Was there a moment or was it just gradually over time? I think it was definitely gradually over time. I think I've had a a multitude of little moments. Like when I played my first tournament, I remember it was at Irvine Racquet Club and I was really young still. I was maybe like 14 or 15. So definitely not competing professionally at that point, just going for fun. And there were only boys in the tournament that I was playing. And I remember I won the doubles and I was like, oh my God, this is cool. I'm like beating up on guys. I'm like winning a tournament. This is cool. And so that was like the first little moment where I was like, okay, I might be good at tennis. And then I remember I was recruited for um, school at Arizona and I was like, oh my God, a D1 school wants me to play. That's cool. Maybe, maybe I'm good at tennis. You know, like it was like yeah. a couple of little moments. And then I think more recently, or I think once I qualified for my first Paralympic games, that was really exciting. That made me be like, okay, now I'm playing on like a world stage. That's big. And then more recently, um, taking the world number one to three sets, beating a, a multitude of the players that are in the top 10. I think 
I'm slowly having moments where I'm like, yeah, I belong. Mm. <laughs> I definitely belong here. Cause I think it's very easy in tennis to have like imposter syndrome where it's like, you have these couple big wins, but you don't always string them together. And it's like, oh, maybe I'm not that good, but I just had a good day. Yeah. And, um, recently I've had more and more experiences where, where I'm like, okay, I'm not just having good days. Like this is me. I'm doing a good yeah. job. And, um, it's been great. You can have imposter syndrome in a match that you haven't won yet where you're, where you're can I really do this? Can, <laughs> Tennis I, is the yeah. worst. can I really do this? Is this going to happen? I don't know. I shouldn't be doing this. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, but there was something else about your bio that I found fascinating. You were described, I think yourself and by other people as insanely competitive. Would that be pretty accurate yes. to say? Yeah. It's like, it's, it's an asset and it's, um, a flaw I think like you don't want to play board games with me like, I, get, okay. I get so into them or even like there's um <laughs> there's this stupid trivia game that they have on Netflix right now and like you can interact with it and like try to beat your high score and like every time that I don't get a score that I want I like keep playing it again and again mm -hmm. and again and again and then I'm like hours are like lost I'm just really competitive and I think that that has definitely helped my tennis career for sure did, uh, or are you someone rather that handles losses? Okay. How does that competitiveness go when you have a tough loss? Is it a process? Or are you someone like, don't talk to me for a little bit. I'll be fine a little later. How's that? How's that process? Like, I'm definitely one of those people that like, you know, I'm not going to like smash a racket. I've never smashed a racket. Okay. Um, I would be lying if I said I didn't never wanted to, but I've never yeah. done it. Um, but I'm definitely the type of person where it's like, don't talk to me for at least like 15, 20 minutes. And then after that, I'm usually fine. But for those first 15, 20 minutes, I don't want to talk to you. That's understandable. I mean, especially competing at the <laughs> highest level, there's some toughness there that, you know, people can't relate to when you lose a match of that magnitude. I, I thought it was fascinating yeah. in, in reading up and watching on you, how the USTA has kind of been that hot bed of training, how you're able to yes. get the, get the development of your game, but also, you know, you're watching film in there. You're really breaking down your game. It seems like, you know, USTA doing a great job with that, but not just for wheelchair tennis, but just for all tennis players, giving them that edge yes. to build up the sport in this country that has had a little bit of a dip in recent years. Seems like it's on the rise all across the board. For sure. I think that training in Orlando has definitely changed my career path a hundred percent. Um, I've had so much more guidance in areas that I didn't really have guidance before, especially in like the strength and conditioning side. And then definitely in terms of like analytics, like you mentioned, that's something that I know so many tennis players that come to Orlando rely upon. And like tennis is such a cerebral type of thing. You can get in your own way a lot of times, like overanalyzing. And when someone else is doing the analyzing and telling you like, look, this is when you win 76% of your points, blah, blah, blah. It opens up a lot of doors for you and makes tennis easier in a way. Mm -hmm. And it's also a cool environment where you like push each other. Like I get to say that I train next to Maddie Keys all the time. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I've seen Sloan Stevens come to the center. You see a bunch of like our top ranked juniors in the country. And we all like hang out when we're at the site together. We like kind of egg each other on during practice or in the gym. It's, it's a great environment for all of us, I think. It's exciting to see, and it was, you know, that part of the development that sprung you along. Um, you know, you are the name that comes up first American to do a lot of things. So growing yeah. the sport in this in this country, it's a true thing, like competing in all four majors, obviously, you know, winning a major title yourself in doubles. But did you have people you were trying to emulate or chase? Because I know it's, it's a little different when you're the first of your country to be breaking these barriers. Did you have, you know, influences in tennis idols at all? Um. 
I wouldn't say that I ever had like that one person where it's like, you know, you have their poster on your wall mm -hmm. and you're, you're kind of like looking to them specifically. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't really have that. I think that it would be wrong not to mention Esther Vergeer, who has like an insane tennis record, um, wheelchair tennis or able-bodied tennis, yeah. you know, like her, her win record was like over a thousand matches or something <laughs> like ridiculous. And she won, I don't know how yeah. many grand slam titles. And she's just like a freak and, and in the best way in right. terms of tennis. And I, I never really competed against her, but I, I knew about her even, <laughs> even though yeah. she wasn't on tour at the same time as me. So obviously when you think of someone you want to be like, I would think of her. Um, but in terms of me like striving for things, I think I just get pushed by the people that beat me every week at tournaments. You know, you're kind of yeah. like, what does she have that I don't have? Like right. I can hit a bigger forehand than her. Why is she beating me? Or, oh, she hits that really good drop shot. I need to learn that. I think I was motivated by the people that are surrounding me all the time. And I think that's the beauty of tennis is that you're never a complete player. There's always something you can do to get better. For sure. And I think that I focused more on that. And then I've been lucky that those big milestones kind of came along with it. Seeing Esther Vergeer and Rick Draney had to be cool too. Two wheelchair tennis legends inducted into the Hall of Fame this past year yes. in Newport. Uh, you mentioned it. Esther's stats are just ridiculous. Like it's just They're downright nuts. stupid what she was able to do. <laughs> Uh, I got to ask you about the Wimbledon run because some people might consider it the greatest fortnight ever when you throw in an engagement in there. Literally <laughs> getting engaged the day before you fly out and then winning your first major title. It has yeah. to feel like a floating experience. And I'm just, I guess the first question would be, when did it sink in? I feel like it would take a while to, you know, is this a dream or am I actually doing this? Oh my God. <laughs> it took forever to sink in. I don't think it really sunk in until I got to the media room after winning the match. And they were like, you're the first American um, female in the wheelchair tennis space to ever win a major. And I was like, stop, you're joking. And then they're like, no, you're the first ever. And I was like, oh my God. And even then that didn't really sink in, but it felt like, okay, this is really cool. And then I remember going home back to Orlando and there were like signs that they put up and there was like a, a big party that they threw for me with like strawberries and cream. And I was like, wow, okay. I think it didn't, it didn't really sink in until then what I had really achieved. When you're on a run and everything's going well, is there a point yeah. where you feel like, okay, this is, this is different. This is something special. Like I know you're at the top of the game and always competitive, but did that, did you feel any signs along the way? Like this could be a special one. Um, I knew that I had a really good chance of doing something good, not, not really winning, but I knew that I could at least get to a final with Yui. She's such an accomplished player. Um, someone that unfortunately has beat me many times in the doubles court. Um, but we've always had really good matches. Yeah. And so to team up with her, I was like, okay, this is a really good opportunity for you. Like, let's not waste it. And, um, I think at the time in that final, we were playing against a virtually unbeaten pair. The Dutch team had had so many calendar slams together. Like they're really good. And so I remember during that match, when we won that first set, whether it was like six, one or six love or something, something like that, I was like, Oh my God, I knew I was leaving today with the trophy, but it might be the big one today. <laughs> and I think that's when it started to sink in like during that match. Uh -huh. And then, um, yeah. And it, beyond that, it just became kind of like a surreal out of body experience. 
Well, it's an, an amazing story. Again, you, you started off getting engaged. You fly out there. You win. You don't get your you don't get your strawberries and cream, but we'll get to that later. Hopefully, That's right. <laughs> hopefully. Uh, and, and how was the how was the Wimbledon ball? I'm always asking. I'm always just fascinated by that. It's like a who's who. It's like a secret club. Do you know what's crazy? And I'm still kicking myself. I didn't go to the Wimbledon ball oh, that night. Oh. I had been to it before. So my ex-boyfriend um, plays on the tour and he had invited me before with him. So I had been, and I think that by the time that we had finished our match, it was later in the day. I had just had dinner. I was like exhausted. And for whatever reason, I just wanted to go home and call my mom and call my family and talk to them. Okay. And, and that kind of mattered more to me in the moment yeah. than going to the ball. But when I did go to the ball that one year, that was insane. Like people dressed to the nines. You're wearing these like flowing gowns. I remember Serena had won it that year. Um, I think, was it Andy Murray? I think it might have been okay. Serena yeah. and Andy wow. that were there. And you see that. And it's like a very small space. So you are all very much together. And it was an experience I will never forget. It was very cool. And in a way, it kind of makes it really special that I did that the one time. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You got the experience. Yeah. It's, yeah. That's so cool. Uh, did that lead to, I mean, the, the final note on this is, did that lead to you getting maybe the coolest honor for you and throwing out the first pitch for your San that Diego Padres? That was really cool. Yeah. That was really, really cool to go back to San Diego where I'm from and throw out the first pitch with the Padres. As soon as I told my strength coach that I was going to be doing that, he literally had me start um, throwing, what is it, 60 feet. Mm -hmm. uh, we were supposed to like play <laughs> yeah. catch multiple times a week to make sure that I didn't embarrass him and like not throw far enough. Yeah. So that was like a whole joint team effort to get me out there and throw a good pitch. That was really fun. Yeah, we can't have like a Mariah Carey 50 cent thing. You got to actually. Oh my gosh, no. Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah, that lives forever too. The internet stays undefeated. Forever. So. Yeah, you got to really dig in there. Uh, a couple more <laughs> couple more things here with Dana Matthewson here on Tennis Channel Inside In. Uh, you do have plans to eventually retire. It's I know yeah. I, I got to ask the question. You're still pretty much at the top of your game. Like it's pretty close to career highs. You just won a major. What's the process been like to decide to not obviously retire imminently, but to wind down your professional tennis career? I think a lot of, I mean, you're absolutely right. And I do have those thoughts where I'm like, you know, you're maybe you haven't even peaked yet. You know, mm. um, are you sure you want to hang it up? And I think that, the main reason that I want to stop playing tennis, and I think a lot of other professional tennis players or people that have been on the tour would understand, is that the lifestyle is a total grind. And so it's not that I don't love the sport. It's not that I don't love competing. I love the training. I'm going to miss all that so much. Right. But being on the road for 30-plus weeks out of the year, um, now that I have a fiancé at home, and I've got, you know, my dog that I got during COVID and, and stuff. I have things at home that really make me appreciate being home now where I didn't necessarily have that in the earlier years of my career. And that's definitely made me shift my focus just mm -hmm. enough to think about wanting to retire. And then I think that um, a lot of other tennis players can appreciate the fact that there's a lot of stress with tennis in terms of income. Um you know, like a lot of people think that we're all making millions of dollars every year. And I'd be lying if I said that I wasn't doing fine, but there's stress in terms of like, you can work your butt off for weeks and weeks during a training block at home mm -hmm. and then show up for us open 
And then say your first round is either against someone that's super good and you just happen to lose out, or maybe you play an amazing match, but they just play a little bit better. And then you don't make money that you could have made that day. And everything is really performance-based and Mm -hmm. variable. And I think that the older I get, the more frustrating that is to me. Um, And I understand it, you know, that sports, a winner wins and a loser loses, but I think it's tough in tennis that you can still play well and still lose. And that can drastically affect your income, Mm -hmm. your ability to pay coaches, et cetera. And I think that in the long term, I'm, I'm ready to have a little bit more of a peaceful life. (laughs) No, I, I, I get it. And it's a common theme with athletes, right? You lose that desire to do the things outside of playing your sport, to go on the road, to be, you know, and, and look, the the train doesn't stop. There's always a new batch of kids coming in that want what you have and they're always going to compete. And you all, you have, you yourself personally have the accomplishments where, you know, you've accomplished a lot in the game. So you know, it's, it's understandable. Uh, and I actually do like the way of winding it down, not this sudden, I'm going to just, you know, retire right away thing, which I think is. Yeah. I don't, I don't think I'd be able to do that. (laughs) Like I mentioned a lot of accomplishments representing the U S in the Paralympic games is great. A couple of times doing that has been fun to see as well. And it's, it is refreshing. I know we have a long way to go in this country. You know, as we said, wheelchair tennis being on the same level, you know, being looked at the same way, but it's cool to see you as a sponsored athlete, having all these opportunities as a result of it. Uh, I did want to say the Maestro Double Tequila sponsorship, you know, if you're, <laughs> if you want to send some over here, I can taste, taste some of okay, it. Too. I'll, yeah. You can send me your address. <laughs> yeah. But it's cool to see this life that you've made through all this and, and, you know, speaking as well to the next generation to people that, you know, have issues or just want to hear your perspective on things. What message would you have to people that might be starting the journey, a similar journey to the one that you're on? Um, I think that my message would be that if you're really passionate about something, don't take no for an answer. I know that sounds so cliche, Mm -hmm. but it kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier about being stubborn. Mm -hmm. Like if something really matters to you, you're gonna, you're gonna meet some roadblocks I think what sets apart people that are remembered in history or are, you know, like accomplished big things, it's the people that didn't give up just with any sign of adversity. Um, I would not be talking to you here today if my mentality was to just be like, oh, well, that was kind of hard. I guess I'll just go another route. Um, And I think that's something, I guess you call it tenacity or a whole bunch of other synonyms, but I think that's my advice. Like find something that matters to you and makes makes you tick, whether that be sports, whether that be, you know, public speaking, or I don't know, maybe you want to start a business or, Mm -hmm. you know, it can be anything and it can be big or small, but if it matters to you, problem solve, Mm -hmm. find ways to make things happen for you. I think problem solving is a huge thing. Um, Make things happen for yourself. Problem solving in tennis is the, is one of the best features doing it in the real world. It's so cool to hear. It's so cool to hear you say that, right? Like you could have gone a different direction, had a whole different outlook. And now here you are as a major champion setting your life up. And, you know, again, props, you got a wedding coming up in December. So congrats on that. And got your, got your doctorate of uh, audiology. So I I did want to just get your brief thoughts on, you know, why did you pick that degree and what are you hoping to kind of use that for? So I, I picked audiology when I started touring colleges. So like I mentioned before, I was recruited from University of Arizona. And I remember on my recruiting trip, I was touring the campus 
and I saw the speech and hearing sciences building and I'd never heard of that before. Like it's such a niche major, like most people like, what is that? And um, my mom was with me on the tour and my mom is a pediatrician. So I asked her like, what is that? And she explained like speech pathology to me and audiology. And I actually thought that I wanted to be a speech therapist with little kids, Mm -hmm. which is why I declared that major. And then um, over the course of like, I think it was my fourth year, you have to take classes in both specialties and audiology just clicked. Like it's very much goes with problem solving. Like Mm -hmm. everything is a puzzle. So like you get presented with a patient and then Mm -hmm. there's different tests you run. And if you get answer a, then you do the next type of test. And I liked that. Um, I liked that you get to work with people. I liked that you could instantly help someone like all those videos you see where like they're turning someone's hearing aid on like that was my job. Um, so yeah, that's, that's why I picked it. I think it's very mentally stimulating and there's a lot of problem solving because every patient's different. And then I got to work with people. So it was like a great fit. Weirdly, I'm not sure if I'm going to work in audiology. So, um, you're catching me at an interesting time of my life where I, as a type A person do not know my exact next move, which stresses me (laughs) out. So I, I do have my doctorate in audiology, which means that I could go into work in that field, but I'm not sure I want to anymore. I, I'm really interested actually in working in the tennis space. So I'm not sure exactly what I want to do in that sector, but I've had some talks with the USTA. I know that tennis channels out in California where I'm from. I I would love to come out there. Um, I think that as tennis players, we know so much about just one facet of tennis, but there's so much more to it that I find so interesting. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a lot of room for growth in that industry. And I think that's really attractive to me. And so I'm kind of, trying to plant seeds and learn more and kind of see where I end up. Well, I would say do it while you're still playing. Cause there's this huge bump of people that come here and analyze and then go out and win matches. So that would definitely help. Okay. Um, free scouting as Shelby Rogers once told me, but no, it, it's great. And it answered my question too, that you very much seem like you're going to be involved in the game, wanting to keep tennis in your life, which is great. Yes. Uh, it's been a joy chatting with you. I did want to also shout out someone I spoke to last year. Cause I know you've done some work with her. Uh, Vanya King and the uh, Asian American Pacific Islander. Yes, Vanya's uh, great. Oh yeah, she's great. Very forthright, brutally honest about like her upbringing and everything that happened. <laughs> she's yeah. awesome. Uh, but no, it's awesome. And, and the last thing, Dana, just any other personal, you know, I know you're a dog mom. I know you have some of your interests, <laughs> but what other things, uh, you know, as we get ready for this married chapter of your life, what other interests yes. do you have off the court? Oh gosh, off the court. Sometimes I worry that I'm boring. I'm like, I don't really have a lot of like cool hobbies. Like I'm not going to be like, oh yeah, I come home and I paint waterscapes or whatever. I don't have anything cool like that. Um, I do like to bake a lot. The other day I made pumpkin snickerdoodles and I didn't kill anyone when they tried them and everyone loved them. So that's a plus. (laughs) Yeah, that's okay. (laughs) I like, um, I have a weird love for escape rooms. Does that make me a huge nerd? No, I don't know if nerd would be the word. Interesting. <laughs> Escape. Well, it is the season. So, um, yeah. Um, yeah, I think between me being at training all the time or being on the road and then being a little dog mom to my little dog, Riley, a lot of my free time, I'm just like totally lazy and I binge watch a lot of trash TV. I can say that. Like Real Housewives is my jam. Okay. okay. Trash TV. <laughs> Baking, escape rooms. We're getting to, we're peeling back some layers here. Yeah, trash good. TV. What else do I do? 
that's probably my main thing. That's that's all you can get okay. for now. Okay, we'll have, to, <laughs> we'll have to wait a little bit, put some time in, and really do it. But in all seriousness, Dana Matthewson, it's been a joy chatting with you, hearing your story, your perspective on things, the amount of change you are a change agent, agent helping people, uh, you know, see things differently and uh, improve the uh, quality of life for everyone out here. Best of luck this year and beyond. And thank you so much for coming on Tennis Channel Inside In. Thank you. This was really fun. A huge and sincere thanks to both Ari Wolf and Dana Matthewson for appearing as guests on this week's show. And as always, Tennis Channel Inside In is found on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. It's very simple. You can go to tennis.com slash podcast. You'll find Inside In. You'll find all the outstanding catalog of shows on our network. You can find every episode of Inside In, Tennis Channel Inside In, on your favorite podcast platform. So search Tennis Channel Inside In. You can subscribe, leave a rating, a review. When you subscribe, it will download every episode to your phone, your tablet, whatever your listening device is. It's that simple. We're back next week to talk more exciting tennis. I'm excited to talk about it, to break it down with our panel of experts and guests. Thanks again to both guests this week, Ari Wolf and Dana Matthewson. And thanks so much for everybody out there listening. My name is Mitch Michaels. This was Tennis Channel Inside In. We'll see you next week.